0: All right, well, good morning. So remember, um, some of you will be familiar with Boromir from the Lord of the Rings. Does that ring a bell? Okay. A great council has been called to figure out what to do with the ring of power, and it's agreed that it has to be destroyed, and the only way to do that is to take it to the Mountain of Doom, drop it in this volcano that's in the heart of Mordor. We all know the story. And Boromir... um, reacts he's stunned at such a plan and he says one does not simply walk into Mordor its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs there is evil there that does not sleep the great eye is ever watchful it is a barren wasteland riddled with fire ash and dust the very air you breathe is a poisonous fume not with 10,000 men could you do this right it's one of the most uh, memorable lines in the whole series so if Boromir were with us this morning, he would have a similar response to today's sermon. One does not simply read Revelation. <laughs> okay. Its mysteries are beyond comprehension. There is symbolism that perplexes the greatest of minds. Its pages are riddled with dark paradoxes and crazy drama and wild images. There are monsters and devils and dragons and multi-headed beasts. Its prophecies are both terrifying and baffling. Not with $10,000 could you do this. All right. <laughs> so, well, even as they headed off into Mordor, facing such great challenges, we today resume our series on Revelation. All right. So uh, you might remember that we spent uh, several weeks last year exploring a number of different themes that run through its 22 chapters. These included God's omnipotence and glory, the fact that he is eternal, he is the beginning and the end, and very important that his judgments are just and true. Hopefully some of this you, you will recall. We looked at the theme of persecution and the ongoing exhortations to endure hardship, And several themes about Christ with special emphasis on his power and authority. And in this book, he is, of course, portrayed as a divine warrior, terrible and mighty, the one who will bring judgment upon the unrighteous and overthrow the fallen world systems and the the wicked rulers who control them. So those nine weeks in Revelation, they ended, if you will recall, an overview of the four main schools of thought regarding how this book itself is to be approached, the four schools of interpretation. So let's see if we can recall them. One of them is, is called preterism, preterism, okay, the next one is historicism, and then idealism and futurism, okay, all right, it's good to hear that. I won't comment one One thing we did not do and this may be the only series on revelation ever given in the history of the world anywhere on the planet uh, that didn't is to try to interpret any of the strange events in John's vision and I avoided that on purpose choosing instead to explore other truths in the book that often go unnoticed. And typically, as you know, we get distracted, preoccupied with trying to match its prophecies with current events. And in so doing, we fail to catch and appreciate a lot of the other great stuff that's going on in this book. Now, initially, probably three or four years ago, when I was first first starting to think about this series, my plan was really quite simple, not very ambitious at all. All I wanted to do was to draw to just draw out some relevant lessons from chapters 2 and 3 and try not to tackle anything else. And As you will recall, these two chapters contain what is typically referred to as the seven letters to the seven churches, and this, I believe, would be a worthwhile series. But as I started to prepare for that, the more I got into it, it seemed that it'd be somewhat irresponsible to not spend at least a little time addressing the book itself, given how strange and complicated that it is. And so that's what I did, and as a result, I ran out of time and never did get to the very thing that started it all, the seven churches. And so today we will launch into that with the help of not 10,000 scholars, but maybe a dozen or so, all right? Now... Of course, thousands of sermons have been given on these seven churches and those sermons, and um, uh, one might think that this would be an easy series to work through, and I initially kind of thought that that might be easy, but actually it isn't. Uh, There are a number of things referred to in those two chapters that are just, they just tend to be beyond our reach, which kind of complicates things. There is some symbolism there that we can maybe speculate about, but we can't make any hard conclusions on. Uh, on top of that, some of the language is vague and ambiguous. We aren't exactly sure what's going on. For instance, the Ephesians are exhorted to return to their first love, but we don't know what that first love is. And there are things referred to that's just been lost in history. and We just don't know anything about. For instance, the Nicolaitans are mentioned a number of times, but we don't know who they are or what their troublesome teachings and practices were. And any, any information that we might have about them is really quite sketchy. On top of this, Bible commentators don't all agree on the relevance of these seven letters to Christians today. Um, <clears throat> uh, some see every command, every promise, every warning as directly applicable to us. And on the other side of the spectrum are those who suggest that very little, if anything, is relevant and argue that we do damage to the spirit of the text if we try to force applications that are not intended. So these are just some of the challenges. In fact, there was a point actually when I was tempted to just kind of back out of this and skip it, but I remembered that there were a couple times last year when in passing I mentioned that this was my plan, and so I felt stuck, but it doesn't sound like that many people listen to what I say anyway, so I probably could have gotten away with not doing this. But um. Whatever the case, there really is a lot of cool and um, fascinating stuff in these two chapters. And one of the reasons I I want to do this series originally and even now is because when you read these seven letters, they just naturally draw you in. Um, Even if there are some things that are not as clear as what we would like, there's plenty that is clear, and not just clear, but valuable and relevant. And so whatever reluctance I may have had has been offset by... Really, genuinely, my love and appreciation for the book itself, Revelation, and for these two chapters, and these seven letters are quite rich. So let's get into it. Today's going to be kind of an introduction, and we'll cover material that typically belongs to an introduction, and the next Sunday, we'll start working through these two chapters, verse by verse, beginning with the church at Ephesus. So first, let's talk about genre. Though they have been traditionally referred to as seven letters, they aren't really letters, not technically. They are not structured like letters of that time period and lack many of the components that we would expect um, letters to have. And furthermore, letters suggest that they were separate pieces of communication that were somehow collected and compiled, but of course this wasn't the case. All seven seven of them together make up a crucial part of the book, and what was sent to each of these seven churches was, of course, the whole book of Revelation. On top of that, And more importantly, we should note that all the warnings and promises that are directed to any particular church is meant for all of the others as well. And this is very important. Seven different times, Jesus says, he who has an an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, says that to each church. So each church is to read and take to heart not just what is said to them, but also what is said to the other six. So, it might be better to refer to them as messages or short sermons that are embedded in the book of Revelation, or better yet, prophetic oracles. That's really how we should think of them. They are prophetic oracles because they are messages delivered by an inspired prophet. And who would that inspired prophet be? John, dealing with a specific situation that currently confronts God's people. All right. Now, sometimes because of habit, I might refer to them as letters, and it's not a big deal if we do that from time to time, as long as we realize that technically they don't really belong to that genre. Let's move on now to literary context. To better appreciate chapters 2 and 3, we would want to go back and see what's going on in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we see that the whole book of Revelation, not just, not just these seven letters, But the whole book was originally intended for the seven churches, all right? They were the first readers, the original audience. Again, the whole thing, the whole vision was originally for them. Also in chapter 1, we see that these seven churches are symbolized by, who can remember? They're symbolized by seven golden lampstands, all right? And that someone like a son of man was among those seven lampstands, and that each church had a particular angel, symbolized by seven stars, okay? It's been a while since people read Revelation, (laughs) all right? So we could spend a lot of time on this, exploring all the nuances of the symbolism, but for today, it's sufficient to say that the lampstands probably refer to the light of each church and that Jesus, the fact that he appears among them, probably symbolizes his ongoing presence, In those churches, the symbolism of the angels being stars is not uncommon. We see this in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Job. The more tricky question here is who or what are these angels? And um, just sort of intriguing. I mean, after all, they are the actual recipients of these prophetic oracles. This is how each message is directed, you know, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church at Smyrna, to the angel at the church in Philadelphia, and so on. And so we'll spend a couple minutes here on this, and as to be expected, a lot of theories have been proposed on on all of that. One popular position is that the angels are simply personifications of the churches. In this case, the word is used figuratively for the spirit or life of the church itself and isn't meant to denote any particular person or being. Augustine seems to be the first to claim that these angels represented the pastors of these seven churches, and that particular interpretation has enjoyed quite a bit of popularity through the centuries, and this seems actually quite reasonable, natural, given that generally speaking, people think of their pastor in angelic terms, right, (laughs) or at least should, right, Another theory is similar in the sense that the angel refers to a designated public reader serving in the role of a messenger. And as you know, the word angel can also be translated messenger. It is sometimes used in the Bible to refer to human agents. And these public readers would translate letters and other communications sent to the church and then read them to the congregation when the church body came together. And such letters might from... Uh, They might come from one of the apostles or another church leader, a missionary, or even a sister church, and so on. So all these possibilities are feasible. The problem is that the word angel is found all through the book of Revelation, almost 70 times, and in all these other references, the word refers to a heavenly being, an actual angel. And so unless there is a compelling case to break from the pattern, it seems best to see the angels here in the same way. Seven celestial beings, each of which are involved in the life of these seven churches. And on this, we can only speculate what that involvement is. Perhaps they are something like a guardian angel. Maybe they serve as the church's representative in the courts of heaven, or both, or neither. We just don't know. And then there's this question. Do all churches have an angel assigned to them? Do we have one? You know, well, we'll just let Josh answer that one once he graduates from seminary, okay, because we'll have a lot of questions for him then, and we'll expect him to have all the answers, right? Along that line, it does seem a bit odd that that the warnings, rebukes, corrections, and exhortations that we find in these sermons are directed to angels. You know, wouldn't it make more sense to direct them to someone who would be not only responsible for the problems, but also be in a position to do something about it? And it's hard to see how that would be true of an angel, but maybe that's there's more going going on behind the scenes that we just don't realize when it comes to this. Or maybe, I'm going to propose, maybe we shouldn't try to read too much in all of this. There are angels in chapters uh, 2 and 3 because there are angels all through Revelation, mentioned 69 times. They're just part of the whole apocalyptic package, the drama and scenery and everything else. And so might be best not to overthink it too much. And I've already spent too much time on it. So (laughs) whatever the case, here's the important thing. The book of Revelation was not hand-delivered to seven angels, but to seven congregations, people. And these messages, sermonettes, were intended for people in those churches. That part, of course, is quite clear. Okay, let's now survey the characteristics of these seven churches and get an initial feel for each of their strengths and weaknesses. And if you have your Bibles, if you want to, it may be helpful to follow along. Um, Not necessary, but could be helpful. So we'll start with Ephesus, the beginning of chapter 2. They are commended for their deeds, their hard work and perseverance. They're commended for not tolerating wicked men. They were faithful to test those who claimed to be apostles. They hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. They have preserved and endured many hardships for Christ, but they had forsaken their first love. So we would refer to them as the loveless church. Smyrna would be the persecuted church. They're known for their afflictions and poverty. They're known for enduring slander. They're exhorted not to be afraid of what they are about to suffer, and they are encouraged to be faithful even to the point of death. And then we have Pergamum, the uncompromising and yet compromising church. They live where Satan has his throne. Uh, They remain, in spite of that, they remain true to Christ's name. They did not renounce their faith in him, even during a time of great persecution. They have some members who hold to the teaching of Balaam, and they have some members who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Then Thyatira, the corrupt church, they're commended for deeds uh, and for love and faith, service and perseverance. However, they tolerate the woman Jezebel, whose teaching has led some into sexual immorality. And then in chapter three, we have Sardis, which we could call the dead church. They have a reputation of being alive, but they are dead. Their deeds are incomplete. However, they have a few members there who have not soiled their clothes. And then Philadelphia, the faithful church, they have struggled And in spite of the fact that they have little strength, they have not denied Christ's name, and they have faithfully kept the command to endure patiently. And finally, and everyone's pretty familiar with Laodicea, this church is neither hot nor cold. They claim to be rich, not needing a thing, but in reality they are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Two are commended for their strengths— and nothing is said about sins or problems or weaknesses, it's all positive, no negative. One church is rebuked for several failures not commended for any strengths. Everything's negative, nothing positive. And then four churches are noted as having both strengths and weaknesses. Christ says things about them that are both positive and negative. However, one of those, Sardis, barely makes it into that category. It is rebuked harshly for being spiritually dead, and the only good thing about it that is said is you have a few people, a few people there who have not soiled their clothes. All right, let's now consider the question of interpretation and application, because this is an important one. How are these seven short sermons to be understood, and to what degree are they relevant to us? And on this, it might be helpful to start with the four different ways the book of Revelation has been approached through the centuries that um, I referred to earlier, the four major schools of thought on how to view this book. So there are, of course, wide differences between them, and perhaps a quick survey might provide something helpful on this question. First, there is preterism, the belief that the events described in Revelation were fulfilled in the first century and deal mostly with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., The prophecies were in the future for the original readers, but have been fulfilled and are now in the past for us. And so when it comes to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, they would say that the warnings, exhortations, rebukes, affirmations, and promises are limited to those particular churches and do not have that much of a wider application. And we would, of course, we could, of course, learn lessons from what Jesus told them, but nothing directly applies to other churches outside The seven, the second school, historicism, was quite popular during the Reformation, but has more or less fizzled out in the past hundred years or so. Proponents see this book as unfolding through a very long period of time, drawn out over the course of many centuries. The events described in John's vision paint a picture of the successive ages of the Church, and this would be true of Chapters 2 and 3 as well. The seven churches represent seven periods of Church history. One chart I saw laid it out this way. Ephesus would characterize the church in the 1st century. Smyrna, the persecuted church in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Pergamon would be the church in the 4th century when the Roman Empire was Christianized. Thyatira, the church in the Middle Ages. Philadelphia, the missionary outreach during the 17th to 20th centuries. And Laodicea, the modern period of growing apostasy leading up to Christ's return. Right, all this actually sounds pretty intriguing, even clever, but this and other arrangements similar have failed to win uh, many converts. They come across a bit forced and simply don't fit all that well. And those who belong to this camp, uh, the historical view, seldom agree on how to divide the church history into seven periods which, and which church represents which age and so on. And If you were just to do a quick Google search, you would find scores of different arrangements that have been proposed. And also troublesome is, of course, all of this is framed from the perspective of the Western Church, which takes a different path completely through history than the Eastern Church. And all this and more explains why this view enjoys a little support today. All right, the futurist view is the one that, one that we are the most familiar with. This is the default position for most Christians in modern times because it's the one that we have the most exposure to. Essentially, it claims that everything after chapter three is yet to be fulfilled. And so the judgments, the rise of the Antichrist, the fall of Babylon, and so on, will transpire within a relatively short period of time, right before Jesus returns in the future. And when it comes to the seven churches in chapters two and three, well, there really isn't any commonly held position on how those churches are to be understood. Some futurists favor a view similar to the preterists, some favor what the histo- historicists teach. Uh, my own observation is that most cast their lot with the idealists. And so let's turn our attention to them, the fourth school of interpretation. Those in the idealist camp generally interpret the book of Revelation as an allegory, and so they focus on the larger lessons that apply to all Christians everywhere at all times and aren't really interested in timelines and that sort of thing. Instead of offering predictions about any events, past, present, or future, They say that Revelation is all about timeless truths concerning the cosmic battle between light and darkness, good and evil, Christ and the devil, and so on. And so, the seven churches represent churches that would exist at any time throughout the church age anywhere. This means, for instance, that our own congregation should be able to identify with one of those seven churches. And this is a common view, not with just idealists, but also with many, if not most, futurists. Now, it's beyond the scope of what we want to do here in this series to explore all the strengths and weaknesses of these positions, but it is helpful to see when it comes to the question of relevance and application what the commonly held views have been. Most commentators today tend to borrow some of the stronger points from those different camps and suggest something like this, more or less. The seven churches addressed were actual existing churches when John wrote Revelation, and while none of them are precisely duplicated, they can represent the types of churches that are generally present throughout the entire church age, including today. The same types of sins can be found, and any church could have a combination of those sins. And the same could be said for the qualities that were commended. The objective is not to force every church into one of seven categories, but to heed whatever, whatever truths might apply. All right, so that seems to be, I think, a very appropriate responsible approach, uh, a good, sound one, and so f- for our own church fellowship here, we would expect to find some of the re- that some of the rebukes, for instance, would apply to us, and some of the exhortations and corrections, and some of the promises, not everything, but we would expect to find some, maybe quite a bit. Essentially, I would propose that we would simply treat these seven short sermons in the same way we would treat really anything else in the New Testament. For instance, we would find a lot of material in Paul's letter to the Corinthians um, to be directly related to us, and yet we'd find quite a bit that wouldn't be relevant to us really that much at all, and the same would be true of other letters in the New Testament, and the same goes for these seven short sermons. Everything said has value, but there will be certain things that will hit closer to home, and we'll want to give those, when we come across them, special attention. All right, everybody with me so far? All right, good. So let's now consider something of the structure of these seven sermons. Um, even a casual reading of these two chapters will reveal that each uh, sermon contains an organized internal structure and it is consistent. There are no less than seven distinguishable parts typically found in each one. First, there is the commission um, that is, Christ commissions, charges John to write to each church. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, and so on. This is very important. John is faithfully passing on what Christ has told him to say. Each sermon is written in the first person point of view, and that first person isn't John. It is Jesus. It is Jesus who warns, scolds, encourages, rebukes, corrects, commends, and promises. Next we have that Christ identifies himself uh, with either a title or some description. And this serves to punctuate the fact that the one behind the words being delivered is, in fact, the glorified Christ. John may be the one composing the book of Revelation, but the content is being provided by the vision he is seeing. These are the direct words of Christ, and they are specifically from him. And each of the titles generally involves some feature about Christ that John has already described in chapter 1, when he first encounters the resurrected Christ at the beginning of his vision. And so at the beginning of each of these seven messages, we find statements like, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, and so on, all going back to chapter 1. And the titles often connect with something said in the sermon itself. This is kind of interesting. For instance, in the message to Smyrna, the words, I am he who died and came to life again, clearly look ahead to the challenge they are given, which says, be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And also to the promise, to the one who conquers, uh, or the one who conquers will not be harmed by the second death. So there's a lot of that stuff that kind of just ties together. The third element in each sermon is what we could call the assessment. Uh, These are marked by the words, I know, and each church is scrutinized, it's evaluated, it's graded. Some comments are positive, some are negative. Typically, a church is given words of praise for doing something right, and this is followed by uh, scolding for what they are not doing right. And that is marked by the obvious phrase, but I have this against you. The fourth one, uh, when there are complaints, they are followed by corrections. Repent and do the things you did at first. Remember what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Repent. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Number five, after the correction, Christ typically refers to his coming to the church. Sometimes this is a good thing, but uh, generally it is cast as a stern warning. He will come to discipline the church if it doesn't heed his correction and repent. It's pretty serious stuff here. I will remove your lampstand. I will fight against them with the sword in my mouth. I will come like a thief. Pretty direct, harsh words. And then number six, we have the promise of reward to those who overcome. To the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. To the one who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. So these promises are pretty pretty spectacular. I mean, um, they they really catch your attention. The specific reward described is often related uh, to the problem that the church is facing, for instance, believers in Pergamum were rebuked for eating meat sacrificed to idols. It is fitting that if they repent, the reward will be something better to eat, the promise, of hidden, uh, the promise of the hidden manna. And finally, number seven, one that you will be familiar with, is the call to hear formula. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And those exact words are used at the end of each uh, message, and so we could say that this particular element here is the one that is the most fixed. It is a strong exhortation to pay close attention to what they just heard, and uh, to ponder everything, every warning, every command, every rebuke, every step of correction, and every promise carefully. And again, we note the significance of the plural churches. Let him Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Very important. Each of the seven sermons have a wider audience and application than just the church that is specifically named. Okay, everyone following you so far? All right. Um, So along along with an internal structure that we find in each sermon, there appears to also be an external structure as well. Do I have a blank slide there? No? Okay. Uh, There tends to be an external structure as well uh, going on. One obvious feature is the number of churches involved here. Seven, the significance of that number should not be overlooked. The idea, what does it reflect? It reflects perfection, fullness, completeness, so in Revelation we have seven seals of the scroll, seven trump seven judgments, seven trumpets of judgment, seven bulls of wrath, seven spirits of God, seven thunders, seven crowns, seven eyes, seven heads, seven eels, seven kings, seven horns, seven stars, and of course seven churches represented by seven lampstands. Well, okay, angels, and there's also seven angels and seven stars and all that. So Here, the seven churches are the first of all of these other sevens. So the common argument is that these seven churches serve as a representation of all churches everywhere, all through history, at least in some degree or in some respects. And I think that there's truth to this, but I I would be reluctant to push it too far. Certainly the sins that are being confronted are sins commonly found in just about any church. The sins of compromise, pride, complacency, loss of love, lukewarmness, tolerating heresy, tolerating sexual immorality. But yet there are many sins common in churches that aren't found listed in any of these seven sermons. So whatever the case, in the weeks to come, we'll want to ask ourselves, how do the warnings, rebukes, corrections apply to our own church fellowship? And on a secondary level, we would also want to ask how they might apply to our own personal lives. Another feature regarding external structure, is that all seven sermons, when looked at as a whole, seem to be arranged as a chiasm. Um, You'll remember chiasms from previous sermons, especially our study of Psalms. Dave mentioned them this morning. Um, It is a common literary device in the Bible, a type of parallelism, where the various elements of the text are arranged in a balanced order. The first item corresponds to the last, the second corresponds to the second from the last, and so on. And chiasms can involve something as short as just two or three verses or something as long as two or three chapters, like here in Revelation. In this case, there appears to be a pattern that connects unhealthy churches together and healthy ones together, Smyrna and Philadelphia being the healthy ones. And the pattern resembles uh, the menorah, the Jewish lampstand in In chiastic structures, the item in the center often holds significance. In this case, the sermon to Thyatira is by far the longest, and in that sermon there is an extended reference to Jezebel and sexual immorality and a rebuking of this this church's toleration for all that, and Thyatira gets the award for the longest rebuke. The structure here helps us to see that the unhealthy churches dominate. They are featured at the beginning, in the end, and in the center— the two that remain, the healthy ones, are not only in the minority, but they play no significant role in the structure. They're kind of like lost in the crowd, if you will. And all of this would highlight that the churches in this region as a whole are perceived as being in pretty poor condition. Okay, <clears throat> So it is unclear. <clears throat> I woke up like at 3 o'clock last night, and I lost my voice completely. Thinking, what happens? Josh will have to come up here and read everything. All I can do is whisper. I don't know what's going on. And then, about 10 minutes before I had to come up here, my eyes went into a kaleidoscope and everything was spinning around. I think this is, what do you call this old age? Is this what this is? Now, it is unclear whether this chiastic structure was actually intended. Or is the result of Bible commentators trying to be clever, right? Um, But there does appear to be some parallels between the churches uh, that that you know there's some some things correspond. Smyrna and Philadelphia, for instance, both face attacks from those who call themselves Jews but are actually belong to the synagogue of Satan. So, whatever the case. It is somewhat interesting, but I don't think uh, we'd want to push anything here too far. If chiasms are a thing in this book, then I think that we would expect to find them in some other major events, like the opening of the seven seals, the blowing of the seven trumpets, the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath, and so on. And if chiasms are there, they're just not obvious. And I Quite frankly, personally, I tend to be a fan of these structures, and I was very intrigued the first time I was introduced to them about 40 years ago. I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, so to speak. But since then, I've become a little bit more cautious with them. Even as some Christians, you know, we all know Christians like this, they see a devil behind every bush. I think some Bible commentators see chiasm behind every poem or list or sequence, and oftentimes it feels rather forced, and other times I wonder if it's just not coincidence like maybe here in chapters 2 and 3. All right, whatever the case, we'll move on now to, um, uh, and finally, it's only 10 after. Wow. Okay, we should have the congregational meeting today. Got all this extra time. Finally, for this morning, we should try to correct a common misunderstanding that probably all of us have held to. It is quite typical for Christians when reading Revelation to think that the original readers, again, these members of these seven churches, that they were faithful and earnest, passionate followers of Christ, they're suffering for their faith at the hand of oppressive Roman authorities, and that this book was written to encourage them and the, about the good news that Christ will ultimately be victorious and that their faith will be vindicated. So this view, very common, it's largely true. It just has one point that isn't really correct and because the picture is not nearly that rosy. Remember, five of the seven churches have serious problems, uh, serious enough to earn them a firm scolding from the Lord with the promise of a harsh punishment if they don't repent. And so that chiasm, whether intended or not, does help to illustrate the overall problem. The churches in the region were not really all that healthy spiritually, and we can assume that they were but a sample of all the churches in the empire at the end of the first century. What should gain our attention is that even though they all faced persecution from Rome, and we would expect a temptation to cave in and renounce their faith in that persecution, what they are warned about and scolded for deals with matters that are, for the most part, largely unrelated to that. Uh, The church at Smyrna could be the only exception here. But overall, the impending threat consists of things like losing their first love. This is a genuine threat that Christ is concerned about. Embracing idolatry, becoming self-satisfied and complacent and prideful, tolerating and in some cases embracing heresy. The same with sexual immorality and this lukewarmness, just being spiritually anemic and dead and so on. In fact, the overall general takeaway when you consider the whole of the seven sermons is that these churches were more in danger of compromising with the world than being killed by it. And this is an important point. And this is the very thing that makes these seven short sermons relevant to North American Christianity today. We have here, you know, we here may have this sense that, well, we do have this sense that persecution is coming. We don't know when, but we can speak. We know it's coming, that we will soon be treated as outcasts of our society, that our, you know, our views on many social issues, for instance, are views that are fashioned by our faith, but they are in conflict and will be in further conflict in the years to come with the companies that we work for, the retailers and banks that we do business with, the various clubs and organizations that we enjoy, the neighborhoods we live in, and even the families that we belong to. Our future is uncertain. Our freedoms are uncertain. Our finances are uncertain. And I don't want to downplay any of this, but from heaven's perspective, we face a greater threat, a far greater threat that we should be much more worried about, and that is this, compromising with the world and being corrupted with its ideas and values, going along with, and even at certain points, embracing the fallen world system, and thus becoming spiritually dead. And that by far is the great danger that we will be faced with, and we are facing it now. And these seven sermons to these seven churches will help us to appreciate just how danger, how real that danger is, and hopefully inspire us to take the measures necessary to protect ourselves from it. Amen? So next Sunday, we will look at the... um, this prophetic oracle that's addressed to the church at Ephesus. And, uh, of course, there's an assignment. I just ask that you would read those seven verses, just only seven verses there, beginning of chapter 2, once a day, between now and next Sunday. Uh, At least read through it five times. Become familiar with it, uh, what Christ is saying to that church, and then we'll work through it together next Sunday. Okay? Should be able to handle that. So, Josh, I'll invite you at this time. Thank you Wendell and uh, thank you especially for that exhortation at the end against compromise let's all stand together I hope that this uh, the message today has whetted our appetite or just wet our appetite uh, for the upcoming uh, series uh, double down on Wendell's encouragement to spend some time uh, reading ahead and preparing yourselves for what we'll be studying together uh, in closing, we'll read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12. May the name of our Lord Jesus be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace and greet each other in love.